Peter Schwitzer? Oh, yeah, it's the guy I listened to when I made my first billion. He's one clever son of a... Five, four... We're online. The hottest internet station. It's time for The Switzer Show with the guy who makes getting richer easier than running up a credit card bill, Peter Switzer. Well, hello and welcome to The Switzer Show. I'm Peter Switzer and I'm joined by my colleague Paul Rickard and my producer's taking a long time to turn down that intro, but Paul Rickard, how are you? Great, thanks Peter. Some really groovy music there. Yeah. Um, we should play that. Maybe more of more music, less talk. Well, I think so, yeah. I think the producer just loves it so much. He likes drowning us out, but I like it. I like a producer's got attitude. Now, Paul, today we've got a really interesting program. We've got David Morgan the former CEO uh, of Westpac. We've got Nick Cironi, one of the best jewellery businesses in this country. And you and I are going to answer a whole lot of questions that people have sent into us as well. So before you know, we go any further, um, we gonna, I think David Morgan is arguably the most interesting banker in the world, uh, really the Western world. I, I reckon there's probably some Asian and South American bankers who could surprise us. And, yeah. Well, it's a big call. I mean, if, if you're not familiar with David Morgan, um, more recently he was the CEO of Westpac, but he was also worked very closely with uh, Paul Keating. I don't know, was he ever Treasury Deputy Secretary? Deputy. Deputy Secretary to the Treasury, yep. And uh, very prominent all the time when Keating did so much reform to the Australian economy. I think David Morgan was very involved in the design of many of those reforms. So, Without a doubt. And he's been living in London for the last several years, got yeah. some very interesting ideas um, about what's going on at there. Yeah. But, Paul, if you read the book, and the, and the book that's recently come out is called David Morgan, An Extraordinary Life. Now, when you put in the, that, that, like the fact that he went from public service to heading up one of our major banks, but before that, he was a child actor on television. Olivia Newton-John was one of his co-stars. He played first grade for Richmond AFL, the Tigers. Um, I, I didn't know that, Peter. That, yeah. That's a... Yeah, yeah. So he, he actually had a choice of being playing for Richmond or going to the uh, London School of Economics to study economics at a time when there was a famous singer studying economics. They're called Mick Jagger. He was at the London School of Economics at the same time. So David really has had an extraordinary life. And he ended up marrying Rods Kelly, the former minister in the Hawke-Keating governments as well. Um, he was very famous for the whiteboards. Wasn't the whiteboards <laughs> she, <candle. laughs> she was famous for a lot more than that. And, and because Ros and David are mates of mine, I'm not going to rub that in, David. But the reality is a lot of people would remember the famous whiteboard incident. Uh, she was also a minister for tourism and stuff like that. So a, a very nice lady. And But as I say, David's story all wrapped up in this book called David Morgan, An Extraordinary Life. And he's coming out on the program right now. Um, then we have Nick Cironi. As I said, Nick is a, a famous jeweller. But without any further ado, let's cross to David Morgan. David, thanks for joining us. Uh, great to be here, uh, Peter, and great to catch up with you again. We go back a long way. We sure do. We yeah. sure do. So the the book, why the book? A, a banker writing a, a memoir. It's a, it's a. I don't think many bankers have actually done it. When I think about. Yeah, pro probably an act of great folly, uh, <laughs> Peter. But my wife wanted me to do it. Roz, uh, the author Oliver Brown, was very keen. And on reflection, I was torn initially, but I thought there's some interesting stories to tell. Uh, there are some lessons learned, or at least what worked for me. Mm -hmm. um, and thirdly, there are a few causes uh, uh, that I believe in that I wanted to speak up for, including 
including Australia, uh, including the Australian public service, including the Australian banking industry, and uh, including the case for corporate social responsibility. Okay. And you come home at a time when there's been a Royal Commission, mm -hmm. and of course, you were CEO of Westpac, mm -hmm. and also a time when your beloved Labor Party. I know you're, a, you're an unbiased <laughs> man, but you are married to Ros Kelly, who oh, was yeah. a, a oh, Labor yeah. minister. minister so you have to be a little bit biased. But a good chance to win the next election. Do you, do you suspect they'll come to you and ask you a few questions or two about how they can become a really long-serving Labor government like the one you advised in the Hawke and Keating days? Uh, well, uh, by the way, as you rightly say, there's one politician in our family, that's Ros, and that's uh, enough, and I serve John Howard faithfully also. Um, but look, I like being helpful, uh, Peter. I was on, uh, I chaired Kevin Rudd's Future of the Economy stream of the 2020 summit. I was on Joe Hockey's uh, inquiry into the Australian financial system. And I'm currently serving on Malcolm Turnbull's Committee of Inquiry into the Australian Public Service. So I like giving back. Uh, I like trying to be helpful. And uh, if I can be helpful again uh, for help the economic and social fabric of this nation, it would be an honour. David, thanks for joining us. Let me just ask you about the Royal Commission to start with. Were you surprised that the, uh, I guess, that the, the findings were, I won't say quite like a wet blanket, but there wasn't a lot in the Royal Commission for a lot of observers. Were you surprised by that or was that, had you always thought this perhaps was uh, going to be more a discussion around some bad bad circumstances and culture as opposed to tangible things the Commission could actually do to uh, change the banking industry? So uh, I, I think the 76 recommendations actually cumulatively weigh up to actually a very significant agenda. Mm -hmm. And I think part of the rally in the share price was just you people understand the share market, at least as well as me, you know, buy the rumour, sell the fact. Uh, so I think it certainly didn't do too little. And I think that's a substantive agenda. I think it's a good agenda, including the change, by the way, to mortgage broker commissions, which I, as deputy chairman of the fifth largest bank in the Netherlands for the last eight years, saw that change and it worked fine. Um, so I don't. I think it's a substantive agenda. But on the other hand, to uh, I think consistent with your point, it didn't overreach itself. Um, mm -hmm. It didn't enforce, you know, put a ban on vertical integration, which I think would have been a step too far, or some sort of draconian ban on variable remuneration again, which I think would have been uh, a, a bridge too far. And just coming back to the mortgage broker. Um, suggestions and sure. I know Peter and I have got some strong views on this which probably are inconsistent with yours but <laughs> yeah. but look do you really think uh, a sort of a user pay system uh, can work in Australia? Well I've seen it work in the Netherlands. Yeah. Uh, you might just comment how that works so we just... So, so basically in 2013 they undertook the same change as has happened here. Used to be paid by the product provider and then they moved to uh, a user pays system. Now, I don't want to pretend that the Netherlands system is identical because they have deductibility of mortgage okay. interest and right. fees. And that's a non-trivial difference and mm -hmm. quite a high mm -hmm. tax. But all I'm saying is some of the scare tactics uh, or scare discussions saying this will just be unworkable or destroy the mortgage brokers. The best mortgage brokers, I think, who've really been selling to customer need and doing a great job, 
we'll still do a good job. I also think it's sensible that banks would be required to also charge a fee to try and keep a reasonably level playing field. But look, both major parties have said they're not implementing it. So, you know, I believe I'm focusing on implementable agenda. Mm -hmm. So let's focus on the other 75. Okay, well, because you're a good mate of mine, I'm not going to start yelling and screaming at you. On my <laughs> show. You're entirely your point of view, David. Thank you. And if yeah. you hadn't beaten me up in tennis, I, I might have actually, well, maybe I should get even with you, but I won't. <laughs> you understand the game better than I do, yeah. certainly when it comes to you know, making banks successful. Mm. In terms of um, the, um, the agenda for banks going forward, what's a, a good and honest community-serving bank going to look like? So I think, uh, I think actually Hain had uh, in his interim report, uh, Peter, just had some quite simple principles uh, that I think, you know, any well-run bank will follow, you know. Uh, behave in a responsible, ethical and trustworthy manner. Uh, to uh, sell resolutely to uh, customer need. Um, Let's not have a layer, another layer of regulation. Let's have regulation that's simpler and harder to game legally and ethically. I think doing those basics right, plus with customer complaints, Peter, I think uh, don't just look at averages. Look at the fat tail of the ones for the more vulnerable customers, the ones who get stuck in the system, the ones for whom the consequences are particularly adverse and really elevate those. I've got no doubt that the banks can and will change. Westpac changed between 2001 and 2007. All of the all of the dissatisfaction of bank staff, bank customers, and the community towards the banks was present in 2001. And we set out to do something about it, including a famous squash tomato annual report. I don't know whether you remember, mm -hmm. juicy result, public revolt, mm -hmm. social impact report, and we were voted the number one bank in the world for sustainability from 2002 to 2007. Banks can change, we did change, and they will again, to uh, build on what is already one of the world's strongest banking systems. But David, because the banking system is very much an oligopoly, ultimately, it seems like a price leadership model, but you might disagree with that, but it certainly is an oligopoly. And I remember when Cameron Klein decided to break up with the banks, it was a great promotion of that. And Paul, being an ex-banker, said, it ain't going to work. It ain't going to work. And I, it made me think to myself, if one banker, let's say uh, David Morgan, had decided to be totally different from the other banks yeah. and, and really injected unbelievable honesty in the financial planning part of the business in particular mm -hmm. in those days, what would have happened to your share price? Would they have got rid of you as a CEO? What I'm saying is, is it very hard to be you know, the, the person who changes for the better on their own? Or does it have to go all together? That's a great question, uh, Peter, because the benefits of that only show up in the long run. Mm. You know, you don't get the instant payback. In mm. fact, you probably take some short-term paying for it. Fortunately, I had a board who shared my view that the company needs to be run for the long term, not the short term, for four stakeholders, not for one, according to a consistent set of values. And I took a lot of flack in the media and, um, and from analysts for being too conservative because my mantra was Westpac is going to go into the next shock 
as the lowest risk, most resilient bank, because yeah. we will then do uncontested merger and acquisitions. We will take market share, get great people. How did I know that? Because I was cleaning up Westpac in the early 90s when we were the other end of that and we nearly failed. And NAB was the one who was lowest risk, most resilient yeah. and did all those things. So that was my mantra for 20 years. And I had a board, fortunately, who took the long-term view. And what happened? 2008, global financial crisis, uncontested takeover of St. George, a lot of market share and great people. Yeah. And just come back to the Royal Commission. Um, the other thing that the Royal Commission seemed to leave alone was small business. In fact, there was a lot of discussion about whether the problems of small business, particularly in many cases, uh, the borrowers often putting up their home as security, and perhaps some uh, commentators suggested maybe there was a bit more scope for banks to look look closely at uh, how they deal with small business. I mean, you've seen it from both sides, from the perspective of, of you know, a bank CEO and others look down at the economy. Do you still see a big challenge for sort of the relationship between small business customers and their bank? And, and what do banks need to do to really help and support small business? So it is the toughest area. I think you put your finger absolutely uh, on it. Uh, it's also an area that we had a particularly close look at in the Murray inquiry into the financial system, because mm -hmm. I think that was the area where it was considered barriers to entry are, are highest and, and competitive pressures um, not sufficiently strong. We struggle to find compelling evidence, and it's there for you in the report to read, that uh, there was a lack of competitive pressure. As everybody knows on this conversation, um, small banks are pretty risky. Mm. You know, 95 Sorry, small businesses. Uh, small business, yep. I beg your pardon. Small businesses are highly risky. 95% of new small businesses fail within the first three years. Mm. It is a risky business. And in those early stages, what's really wanted is not debt finance, but equity finance. Mm. And I think part of the solution is should be having a more deeper, broader, more risk-taking, more entrepreneurial equity finance business for uh, small business. And now we've got all these big super funds, particularly all these industry super yeah. funds. Have they got a, I don't know, I'm not suggesting that government should regulate superannuation, how they invest, but have they got a role to play in, in perhaps in, you know, not being quasi-banks, but at least working with some of the smaller parts or the growth engines in the economy? So you'd hope that they would be in the position to do so because they have a much longer time mm -hmm. horizon. Mm -hmm. Uh, and uh, I chair um, the Endowment Fund for King's College London. It has an infinite time horizon. So we don't need liquidity, uh, and we can invest in these a uh, lot of private equity, uh, small business funds, because um, we do not need liquidity, and there should be a less liquid, higher risk part of the portfolio. And I'm hoping that uh, uh, those super funds will you know, take this longer term view and, and allocate part of their portfolios mm. to that less liquid, higher risk, higher return part of the uh, the mm. investment asset structure. David, I know what you're like. You're a very competitive man. <laughs> and and I, I, I've had a few arguments with Paul Keating uh, uh, asking the wrong question that he didn't particularly like. One uh -huh. question was when he created the budget surplus in 1988, I think Yes. Uh, and I bumped into Max Walsh on the way to the um, interview with Paul. And I said, what do you think of um, the um, 
the budget surplus and Max said, oh, it's a phony budget surplus. Uh, but it's crea created purely on economic growth. And so the first question I put to Paul Keating was, well, Max Walsh says this is a phony budget surplus. What do you think? Uh, and he blew up. Yeah. It was fantastic radio. And well, everyone in my radio station were really happy to get <laughs> Paul Keating blowing up. Did you have the occasional blow up with Paul when he didn't agree with him? Yes, I did, uh, including a spectacular run-in, which uh, uh, is documented in the book uh, over monetary policy in late 1988, where exactly on the back of that budget surplus that Paul uh, felt very proud of, yeah. I said, and by the way, we need to do more on monetary policy. And he really went for me. Uh, there was a meeting at the Reserve Bank in front of the Reserve Bank Governor. Paul very rarely tore strips off public officials. Um, and uh, as I say, that's well documented. I then went back to Treasury and just uh, drafted a note allegedly from Paul Keating, said, David, on reflection, sorry, I've never wanted advice from wimps. <laughs> Which Paul took in the right spirit. Okay, one one final question for me, and maybe you got one, Paul, before we wrap up is, okay, so going forward, what's David Morgan going to be doing? You, you're back, you, you are home or yes. you're heading home? Yeah, yeah, no, we're, the, the, we're, we're going to be spending the majority of our time yeah. back here now. Um, I'm still on three boards in the Asia-Pacific, one here, two in Japan, in that corridor. And uh, so I'll be wanting to keep my hand in with those, but also, as I say, if there's... Uh, something useful I can do like these Turnbull or Rudd or Hockey inquiries that help the fabric of this nation, it would be, you know, my pleasure to do it. Paul, you another question? Look, I think you've um, summed it up very well, David, and uh, it's been a great uh, opportunity to talk to you. And I wish you good luck in, in those endeavours because we need the help. Don't yes, we? Right. I mean, yeah, yeah. In fact, I'll steal that last question. I think a lot of people listening would like to know how worried or how guarded is your optimism about both the world economy and the Aussie economy over the next couple of years? Yeah, so uh, our, our biggest risk uh, to the domestic economy is global recession. We, the previous homegrown forms of recession are, uh, from causes are a long way away. We don't have a big real wage breakout like we had in 74.5. We don't have uh, unsustainable budget deficits. We don't have inflation uh, too high like uh, in, in the early 80s. So, you know, our fundamentals are actually pretty good. And we also have fiscal and, and monetary space. Uh, but we do need another dose of reform. Uh, and often the darkest hour is just before dawn. 1983, the ALP didn't bring a great economic platform into the election. Uh, we're in deep recession, uh, but we had a big backlog of uh, unimplemented reform. We had a recession, which was an opportunity, never waste a crisis. Mm. Um, and uh, we had a changing of the guard at Treasury. And in the rest of the 1980s, we got more economic reform in those seven years than in the previous post-war period. Yeah. So... As I say, often the darkest hour is just before dawn. Okay, but you aren't seriously worried about international developments outside of our borders? Yes, I am. Um, and I'm mainly worried about the sheer unpredictability of an economic ignoramus, uh, <laughs> Donald Trump, who um, is in charge of the world's largest economy and uh, is... Um, can start trade wars, turning his back on the global. You've got to be worried about that, uh, uh, Peter. Um, 
having said that, and, you know, the Eurozone is as chlorotic as ever. Japan, huge decline in population and entrenched deflationary. There's no shortage of storm clouds. Uh, so we're in for a definite slowing of the, glowing, of the global economy. Whether that turns into a full-blown recession is determined a lot by the capriciousness of Trump and the impact on confidence and sentiment. David, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Peter. Thanks, Paul. And that was David Morgan, the former CEO of Westpac, who's had, certainly, as his book says, David Morgan, an extraordinary life. And now it's time for a word from our sponsor. And now, a word from our sponsors. Okay, so Trump, trade deals, franking credits and Brexit are some of the many obstacles that 2019 has brought to investors. So join us at our Switzer Investment Strategy Day in Brisbane, Melbourne and Sydney to learn how to maximise your investments in a politically challenging 2019. Tickets are only $39 and available from www.switzerevent.com. Okay, it's that time in the program where we answer your questions, and Paul Rickett, of course, is here to help me. Uh, Paul, the first question we've got comes from Melanie from Richmond. She'd probably be a David Morgan fan, Paul. I'm sure she would be, probably a good Tigers fan, I guess. Yeah, I'd say so. The latest news poll today says that it is 54 to 46 in favour of Bill Shorten's ALP. If he wins government, are there any stocks that might benefit or will the share market just see this as bad news and sell all stocks? Well, great question. I think there probably are two questions. What happens when Bill Shorten's elected uh, as Prime Minister? As we expect. As we expect. And secondly, what could be the... Are there any stocks that will win out of potentially changes in policies mm. or priorities or spending from an ALP government? First question, I guess, is a $64 question. Markets often uh, anticipate these things in the, in the short term, ahead of, ahead of election results. That's one of the reasons I'm not as bullish as you, Peter, in the next couple of months. I think yeah. the election risk will get factored in. Good point. And it could well be that even if you know, Shorten does get elected, you get a mini sell-off, but it's all factored into the price beforehand. So that's, that's a hard one to guess 10 weeks out. Mm. I think looking at stocks and industry sectors that might benefit, you've got to think uh, a little bit about where the Labor government will spend money. We know it's very big on spending in education and health. Yeah. And there are going to be some companies in those sectors that could benefit. Now, there's some probably losers as well. The losers are probably better documented. For example, one of the policies that the ALP has is to cap the increase on private health insurance premiums to 2%. Mm. Arguably, that's considered to be a negative for both um, Medibank uh, and uh, NIB. And also health insurers. Ha- health insurers could have some impact on RAMs in health scope simply because, you know, if, if the... The, the, you know, the cost pressures with the insurers, they put they yeah. just squeeze the, uh, the host, private hospital operators a little bit harder. Yeah. It could, however, be a bit of a long-term bonus for Medibank and uh, NIB because, look, I think the biggest issue uh, facing private health insurance is, is just uh, falling participation rates. Mm. And so actually having a bit of control over premiums might help them in the long term, but not in the short term. But in the health space, I mean... Possibility that Labor might unfreeze some of the Medicare rebates, other also encourage some, some demand signals in terms of you know some new treatments or just introducing new policies, you know compulsory this or making you know free tests for this sort of thing. So right. I think companies like uh, Helios, that's the old uh, primary healthcare, mm. 
and uh, Sonic Healthcare could possibly be winners. So health is clearly a sector where there, sh there may be some winners from a change in government, could also be some losers. Uh, education, you expect them to spend a lot more money in education. That's a bit harder to, to, uh, to pick up because that's much more in the hands of the government as opposed to the private sector. But maybe in the childcare space, there could be some winners. Mm. Uh, energy, we know they've got a policy to support uh, renewables, so you'd think that might be good for a company like Infogen. Might also could be a bit tougher on some on some of the traditional providers, Origin and AGL question mark. Uh, and then also in housing, with the changes to negative gearing, uh, possibly changes to encourage the construction of affordable housing. Some of our big home builders could get a could get a boost. So mm. uh, possibly companies like Mervac, yeah. maybe Goodwin. So I think you it's a bit harder, you know. Some companies, you know, governments spend money, a lot of that money goes through private enterprise and that's good for some companies and some sectors. So there mm. will no doubt be winners in the stock market uh, if there is a change in government. There might be more losers than winners, but there will be some companies that win out of it. Yeah, okay, that's a, a reasonable analysis. It is tricky, Paul, as you say. There could be a lot of selling before, then when they win... They, it could actually be a bit of a bounce. Yeah, and if they get the if they get the economics wrong, uh, you know, we get a wage outbreak, we get uh, falling productivity, we don't get, um, you know, any sort of boost in consumer demand, and the economy goes into recession, the whole market will suffer. So, right. you know, you just, I think we've got to wait and see a little bit. But uh, change in government after what is it, almost six years, I guess, of yep. uh, the current team, that will mean a lot of change and. Um, I think that's a reason to be just a little bit uh, careful about the market in the next few months. Okay, so. what about um, this question from Paul? and uh, doesn't say where he's from. What is your view about FMG, Fortescue shares at the moment, and what is your recommendation on the stock? Look, I think with the iron ore miners, they're enjoying an absolute boom at the moment um, for a couple of reasons. One, because obviously they've got their uh, accounts and their businesses in order, but more recently, the iron ore price, not just because the iron ore price has been strong, but they've benefited from the uh, the problems that Vale, who's the biggest producer in the world in Brazil, has had. And there's some estimates suggesting that Vale's production is going to be curtailed by 30 to 45 million tonnes uh, over the next few years because of the uh, problems with their tailing stamps. And the, the two disasters, firstly with BHP and then this, the second one that have occurred in the last three years. Mm. So... Um, that's caused a spike in the iron ore price. Fortescue's been an even bigger winner because what had been happening there was that it produces iron ore of a lower grade than BHP and Rio. And what had, happen had been happening is the di there's a discount between the grade of ore it was producing and the top grade it was blown out. Well, that's mm. suddenly all turned around. So, so, uh, so Rio's uh, sorry, Fortescue's had been on a real winner because not only have iron ore prices gone up, the discounts come right in, so their effective selling prices has soared. Um, long story short, I got Rio uh, Fortescue wrong last year. I got in the wrong time, out at the wrong time. <laughs> I'm very wary when it's up at six dollars and fifty cents. Uh, the iron ore price could keep going high, and if it does, then Fortescue's going to win. But I think they've had a pretty good run. And I, I'm not bearish on them, but I just don't know how you yeah. play this current cycle. Yeah, when when the value of the stock is being determined by something that's hard to determine, like how badly will Vale be affected by, I guess, regulations because of their dams, it's a punt. It's a punt. It should not be a core stock in anyone's portfolio. I and I think also if you are a little, mm. you know, 
the indicators are that, that economic growth is slowing down globally. Yep. It does seem to be, sl- and Chinese growth is slowing. It does seem to be at odds that suddenly the iron ore price is going for an amazing run. And that's why I'm, I'm thinking, well, look, we know what the iron ore price has been over the last five years. It's at mm. a high. We know that, for example, BHP share price was the lowest $13 or $14. It's now in the high 30s. Yeah. We know Rio got down to $25. It was touching $100 the other mm. day. Is this the time to be buying the stocks? I don't think so. No, good point. Do you go short them? No, but, you know, look, mm. if you've got them, I, I think this is the time just to sort of be easing out of that market. But, look, I've been wrong on this, so I'm happy yeah. to say I can But still, totally you're wrong. right. The fact is that if, if you're going to get gains, they won't be great gains for me. They'll be gains, but they won't be great gains. All right, let's go to the final question. This is from John from Nowra. And he says, is it worth investing regularly in something like Spaceship Voyager? How does it compare to traditional investing? I think people are going to need an explanation on Spaceship Voyager. Well, it's a super cheap way to invest. In fact, you pay absolutely no investment fees on the first $5,000. Zero, absolutely zero. Uh, And then over $5,000, it's only charging on one of the funds five basis points. That's 0.05%. So it's like a a broker, a cheap broker. It's like a, a really, really, really cheap Managed fund. Oh, okay. And then, uh, so it, it's index investing. So they invest in a portfolio of stocks on an equal weighted basis. Now they've chosen the stocks. It's the index is an index they've created, right. effectively. So um, Aussie and, or overseas? Or no, both? no. So they've got two. They've got a, they've got what they call a sort of top two hundred companies, which is a mixture of some Australian companies and some international companies. Right. So you've got some big Australian names. You've got names like Amazon and. Uh, and Facebook and others there. Yeah, Netflix as well. And then you've also got a fund that invests in uh, uh, just sort of 100 big companies from offshore. It's an equal weighted index, super, super cheap. Now, it's it's all done online. Mm. Um, you know, they're a bit sort of scant on how the funds are actually going. I went to their site. I saw this question come yeah. in, read yeah. their PDS. Right. Look, lots of positives about super – I, I think five basis points is unsustainable. Yeah. Uh, simply because they've got to have put capital up beside the the, the funds that they uh, through their what's called their responsible entity. Mm. Uh, this is a way to get customers. I noticed that uh, you know you can occasionally I get pestered in the street. Someone giving me paying me to invest in their funds. You know, mm. put five dollars, we'll give you twenty five dollars. You know, it's a uh, it's a new way to invest. It's designed for millennials. Yeah. I just be a little wary because I don't know whether what you're investing in. Mm. You know, this is not some fun, this is not some investment guru actively trying to manage the stocks. And they've selected a, a bunch of stocks. It's an equal weighted index, and it's very scant on information. Because they go broke, and you lose your money. Look, they're regulated by uh, ASIC. Yeah. Um, and um, I suspect that you probably would lose your money if, yeah. if it went out of business. It would just have to give its license to someone else. Someone yeah. would take it on. Yeah. Um, but there's no one, even the biggest like Vanguard, who runs the biggest index funds in the world, its fees are 13 basis points. Mm. This is five. Quite so sure, yeah. Vanguard manages trillions of dollars. Mm. <laughs> yeah, these guys are managing, uh, you know, $25 million in one fund mm. and $200 million in super. Um, is a sustainable question mark. So, um, I still got a super fund as well. You've got a super fund. They've now sort of moved away from super into this. Right. Um, would I be investing at five basis points? Probably not because I don't think it's sustainable. But look, I've been wrong on many things. So okay. uh, have a look at it. But uh, 
as I said, I couldn't see any performance information. And it's no point investing something that's really cheap if the performance is crap. <laughs> that's right. You're going to lose money. False so, so I no couldn't time. see that. And maybe look, someone from Spaceship wants to tell me how they're doing. Yeah. Um, we'll give them a run next time. Yeah, without a doubt. Okay, Paul, thanks for that. That's uh, our little section on Q&A for this week. Um, I'm going to go and interview uh, Nick Cerrone now. You are off. Thanks for joining me. And I'll talk to you next week, mate. Thanks, Peter. Okay. And as I said, we... Um, Caught up with Nick Cerrone, or I caught up with Nick Cerrone earlier in the week, and uh, I'd just like to share this interview with you. Nick is a guy who came basically to Australia with no money, um, uh, was lucky enough to begin an apprenticeship in uh, as a jeweller, and has now created one of the best businesses in the country when it comes to the jewellery space. And he's, he really knows retail back to front, and I think he's a great role model for anyone who wants to go into business. So without any further ado, let's welcome Nick Cerrone. So, Nick, thanks for joining us. Thank you, but it was in the afternoon to find that time. I don't know how you do it. <laughs> Tell me this. A lot of people are saying retail is very tough at the moment. How are you finding it? Peter, look, let's be totally honest. Retail is, is very competitive. Mm. There's no question. Globally, mm. not just in Australia, because of um, it's all these new opportunities that customers have, mm. you know, to shop around, all the information is available. So you really need to have an edge in business. Mm. You need to have uh, an edge in a way that added value. What do you really do with mm. your product? Mm. You know, and, and if you don't have an edge, it's gonna be very difficult. So have you recognized that the internet can both be a threat and an opportunity for, for Turan? Absolutely, at the beginning, I think we were all very, very scared, but because I think now, the opportunity living in Australia, this is for us is an advantage mm. because of the dollar, because of the Argyle mines closing down. We have a lot of uh, wonderful gems in this country mm. and people are looking at us, you know, to buy that unique mm. piece of jewellery or the unique gem that you, we have. Are you being helped by the fact that we've got record tourism into Australia now as well? That is a very, well, you know, Peter, that's very important. The tourism is, for us, is the number one issue mm. because, um, you know, that's clean dollars mm. staying in our country, yeah. you know. And uh, these were opportunities many years ago we didn't have. Mm. But because of the low dollar and because people uh, want to buy something totally unique Australian, is a, you know, it's a great advantage. Okay. Now, what about the internet? What percentage of your sales is going coming from Look, online? We are very uh, aggressive on the internet. We do have, we spent, uh, we have a couple of, three people, three of my staff spends a lot of time on it. And we are very active in the internet, very aggressive in the internet. There's about 20 to 30%. Mm. Especially the last month, we had record sales mm. on the internet. What was, it, what was it like, say, 10 years ago? Well, 10 years ago, we were very scared about the internet because we had to compete. But when you have an, an original product, when you have something that it's unique to Australia and you had a good value to your product, you can't lose. You've got to have something unique. Okay. But what about local shoppers? 
Do you find local shoppers are resisting spending money at the moment? I think so, because when things are tough, they all tighten the belt, which is titled the opposite. It should be titled the opposite. Yeah. You know, as my father would say, you, you put the seeds at the right time. Mm. Mm. And if you don't put the seeds at the right time, you'll never have any opportunity to, to pick your fruit. Okay. So your feeling then is looking at the Australian retail market. And of course, this shop here, you get a lot, of, tour- you get a lot yep. of tourists. It's so, but if you look at, say, your Leichhardt shop, which is more your domestic... Um, Workshop. Yeah. And, but is, is it still also a... Destination uh, yeah, shop. Yeah. It's, is, it, is it finding it harder to get Australians to absolutely. spend than, yes. say, here? Yes. Well, we, then Leichhardt, you get the locals. You get the... Um, you know, look, the locals are the, the lucky, Peter, that people are always falling in love. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So, but how important, for example, Nick, is the the willingness to spend when house prices are all rising and people are feeling wealthier? Do, do you find your business does better then? No, well, look, people are finding it a little bit hard to, to spend that extra dollar yeah. because especially young people today, you know, there's a lot of expectation, mm. you know, with young people. They all want certain size of stone, certain quality, mm. and, you know, it's it's... It's not easy for these young people to come across these levels that they have to uh, obtain or reach, you know. But I think there's, in my field, uh, there's a lot of families, you know. My business is all about family united and parents will help. And so... The bank bank of mum and dad. Absolutely. Okay. Let's go back in time. When you first came here. So when did you come here? And were you trained to be a jeweller when you got here? I was, a, I was one of these young kids that migrated to Australia with no ideas. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the good thing is about this country that there is opportunity if you're looking for opportunity. And really, I've I got to be totally honest, I was hungry for opportunity. Mm. I was hungry to be successful. Angry or hungry? Uh, hungry. Yeah, hungry. Yeah. Hungry, yeah. you know, to be successful, to yeah. be good, mm. to, be, uh, to do something with my hands, mm-hmm. and, and I wanted to do it properly. I didn't want it to have any loopholes, any, uh, you know, halfway. Mm-hmm. I had a very good teacher, mm-hmm. and that helped me to, uh, uh, to uh, understand the beautiful things of life. Mm-hmm. But how did you end up in jewellery, of all, of all the things? It was, could... well, it was just a, really was... A... An apprenticeship was available. Well, an apprenticeship was there. Yeah. My mother and father didn't, have any, didn't even have any wedding rings. We didn't even know what gold and diamonds was all about. But, you know, once you live in this country, you start to understand the opportunity that this country offers you, and and you take it seriously. You know, it's like a musician. It's like a sports. You know, talking about, always about Ian Torp, when he came to our workshop and showed our kids how he had to work hard to win a gold medal. There's no easy way. There's no, you know, loopholes or no shortcuts. You have to work. How hard. many years was it before you opened your own shop? Um, well, I finished my apprenticeship. Uh, uh, it took me five years to finish my apprenticeship. A year later, I opened my workshop. Mm. Okay, and that was that in Leichhardt. Leichhardt. Okay, in, in, in the same same spot, with six uh, six hundred dollars deposit. Yeah. 
and bought the, my terraced house. I oh, say, so, so you bought the terraced terrace house. house in Leica okay. at six hundred. And, and like all Italians, you kept renovating and renovating yeah, right. and adding <laughs> on. Did you get council permission for some of those renovations? It took me ten years. You know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so obviously there was a lot to learn about business. There was a lot to learn. What, right? what were some of the big mistakes you made in the early days, Nick? Well, the mistakes. I think it's. Um, you know, not risking as much as I could. Be you cautious know, in the early days. I was very cautious, yes. I went to my bank manager and asked for $2,000 to go and buy the gold mm. uh, for my first collection. Um, and that was, um, it was a big challenge. And then three months later, I, I sold all my collection and I went back to the bank manager and asked for $6,000. So the problem is with my business is that you need a lot of capital. Mm. Yeah. It's not just hard you work. You pay up front. You pay up front mm. and, uh, and you have to risk a little bit, mm. you know. So uh, if I had maybe an education where, uh, you know, an accountant ability where they say, don't be scared to go and borrow money. Yeah, but the accountants often say no as well. Yeah, that's right. But, but Nick, you, you didn't remain um, a scaredy cat for long because some of your marketing promotions like the famous Kate Fisher, yes. Holt and Nick, all yes. diamonds um, yes. top. I've learned that, you yeah. see. I'm but that, what, what changed you from being the, the risk-averse person to the person who could take a, take a big part to try and get massive public relations? And that went worldwide, didn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Well, that then I had to learn that it wasn't about me, it was about the country mm -hmm. that I was leaving to and what this country could offer you. This is where we used the Argyll diamonds and we got the best-looking girl, as you remember, mm -hmm. Fisher, mm. uh, uh, you know, she was an um, amazing woman. Mm. And we put diamonds all over her. Mm. And, and I knew living in Australia was an opportunity for other people around the world to appreciate who we were. Nick, Nick did you pay for public relation brains to give you some ideas or, or was no. it? So you used no. it yourself? I still do everything myself. Okay, and then you went to newspapers and radio stations? Yes, and... well, the beers help a lot of that promotion. Okay because De Beers was very interested uh, to, um, you know, to promote, you. yes, mm -hmm. and to promote me and, and, you know, winning the, the, the ultimate uh, Oscars at, in Paris at the Opera House. Yeah. Uh, Tell us uh, about that. Well, that was, um, you know, 2000, uh, was it 1998. Mm -hmm. It was over 2,500 2, entries all over the world from the best houses yeah. of the world, mm -hmm. from Japan, America, England, you know, the, all the best houses. And I won the award uh, from Gianni Versace. Gianni mm. Versace won it two years before me, yeah. and I won it off him, mm. the award. Yeah. So it was a big achievement, mm. and I was very, you know, it was something that I was very proud and I'm going to hold, uh, you know. Uh, well, I did it because I wanted to prove the world that Australia is not about shrimp and the barbie those days you remember that's right <laughs> we we do do that but we do other things as we well. do other things too all right so um given all the things that you've learned along the way yeah what do you think has been the most important driver to explain why nick Taroni and his business has continued to succeed with all the challenges out peter there? i still say it today even today you have to worry about your customer. You must give value to your customer. Mm. Mm. You number one priority is to make, make sure that your customer is happy, mm. 
she's got a smile on her face, and then you're allowed to take their money. Okay. One last question. You've been in business for how many years now? 47 years. 47 years. You've seen different kinds of employees, and the younger group of employees are often talked about being very different from former Absolutely. employees. So what have you learned to, to motivate and get the I, best out of young people today? I think what I, what, the, what I do with the young people is today, um, you know, you have to talk to them. You have to put challenges in front of them. You have to ask them, do you want to be the best or do you want to be ordinary? Because there's no room to be ordinary. You won't make a living just being normal. You have to be the best. It's the same as a musician, sport, when you're playing sport, who gets recognised? Is the, the one so do you feel yourself feel as though you're acting like a coach? Coach, very much more so, yes. Yeah. And I think I'm a little bit more tolerant than I used to be yeah. and a little bit more understanding. Mm. Uh, and I think by being older, you start to appreciate people, mm. the, what, who they are and what they are and why they think the way they think. And that was Nick Chironi from Chironi Jewelers. That's the show for this week. Thanks for joining us. I'll talk to you next week. Thank mm-hmm. you.